I'm Matt Bush with BPR News. I'm speaking with author Catherine Eden. Catherine, thank you so much for coming in this morning. Um, it's great to be in Nashville. So, yes, you are in Nashville. You'll be speaking to the Pisgah Legal Services Poverty Forum this evening. Um, your recent book, $2 a Day. Um, $2 a Day is what you found in your studies. 4% of Americans, roughly. Is that what it was? So, if about 20% um, of American children are poor. And about a quarter of those, um, so uh, four to five percent of all American kids um, at any given time are living in families that have virtually no cash income. So we call this extreme poverty because it's a it's a depth, a, a level of poverty we really haven't seen uh, uh, for many years, really, in America um, because we had a stronger safety net than we do now. But uh, but since 1990, we've seen a dramatic rise in the number of children living in households uh, that at any given time report virtually no cash income. So $2 a day represents basically what they're living off of, correct? Well, the, uh, you know, we were, we were going to talk originally about uh, the cashless poor, um, but uh, several economists wisely uh, told us that um, uh, due to a number of data uh, limitations, you don't want to choose zero. So uh, we were looking for some uh, rubric to use, and we said, well, why don't we see what the World Bank uh, what the World Bank uses to measure poverty in the developing world. That would be sort of like if you can find Americans living on cash incomes lower than lower than a threshold used to apply to the developing world, that would be really something. And so uh, $2 a day is, is one of these rubrics. Uh, you know, we've done a number of sensitivity tests. You can use $3 a day or $4 a day, basically tell the same story. Um, uh, but what I think the, the take-home point is that um, uh, – for a period, for at least a period of the year, our threshold was at least a quarter for at least three months. Uh, there are households that are literally now uh, without cash, no no income from welfare, no income from employment, no income from uh, disability or um, or any other source. They may be getting food stamps. A few lucky folks might have a housing subsidy, but they're they're experiencing periods in um, in, in their their cycle, uh, their annual cycle, where they're really subsisting without cash. That's new. It's relatively new. It's really only uh, risen over the last 20 years as our safety net has eroded. And it may have consequences uh, that we haven't seen before. What erosions of the safety net have led to that? You said this is only something that's really about 20 years old. There was a major welfare bill in the mid-90s. Is that it? I mean, what has really led to the erosions of the safety net that you're um, referencing? Yeah, so roughly 20 years ago, we reformed welfare. I think um, uh, there were a lot of good intentions, frankly, on both sides with those reforms. At the same time, um, uh, we um, found ways to support low-wage workers more. So, uh, you know, early on when the economy was booming in the late 1990s, looked like people were leaving welfare, going to work, all good. Uh, but in the 2000s, of course, the economy began declining um, and uh, welfare as a safety net collapsed. So in North Carolina, for example, um, you had about... Uh, 70% of poor families with children at any given time in the state getting some sort of sustenance uh, from the cash safety net. Um, okay, that's, so that's 20 years ago. Um, now that figure is 7%. 
So you might say, well, maybe it's economic times have gotten better in North Carolina. Well, if you look at the numbers, the number of families with children who are poor in the state has increased quite dramatically over that 20 years. And maybe more importantly, the number in deep poverty. So the Census Bureau doesn't keep track of extreme poverty, the $2 a day poverty we're talking about, but it does track uh, deep poverty, families that are below 50% of poverty. And that number in North Carolina has almost doubled in the last 20 years. So Poverty is rising and, and extreme poverty, you know, this, this really living at uh, unbelievably low levels of income is, is rising dramatically. And yet um, there's virtually just a, just a handful of really a handful of households across the straight state that are getting any sort of cash from the, the government. Again, they might be getting food stamps, uh, but you can't buy underwear, socks and underwear. You can't buy, you can't pay your utility bill. You can't, um, you can't buy a school backpack uh, with, with your food stamps. You did studies. You talked to families to, to help do this book. Um, how do they live? So how do they survive? I mean, that was a major focus of this research. And, and, um, and I think that's a, a super important question because it may have uh, significant bearing on the consequences. So if families were surviving by, you know, just depending on charity, p- private charity and and well-meaning, well-meaning family members, this may not be a problem. If children weren't suffering, uh, this may not be a problem. But what we found is is that uh, a lot of families were really going without uh, housing insecurity, especially uh, homelessness and repeated perilous double-ups were endemic. And often the site, so moms uh, are, you know, there's, uh, women are a major feature of tonight's forum. Moms, you know, in this region, um, f- finding themselves in such desperate straits that they, could extra- they, they couldn't really exercise discretion in whose couch they were going to land on in a given night. And, and actually in these repeated perilous double-ups is where we saw the incidence of uh, adverse childhood experiences, ACEs, as it's known in the health literature. These are these are traumatic childhood experiences of abuse and neglect that have an impact all the way through the life course into adulthood and beyond, and even even to the next generation. Um, we also uh, two very common uh, survival strategies, not among the poor generally, but especially among the extreme poor, were. Um, Trading your food stamps for cash, you usually get 50 to 60 cents on the dollar. Mothers felt incredibly guilty about this. Um, but if they had to buy those socks and underwear, they're going to do that. And, um, you know, the food stamp program assumes you're going to spend some of your own money for food. So food stamps was never designed to last you through the month. And, and that means if you sell your food stamps, you're going to be a very, very hung- hungry household. So uh, in uh, Alva May Hicks' household in um, in the Mississippi Delta, um, Alva May sold $600 worth of her food stamps. She had a very large family to pay a $300 utility bill to keep the lights on. Her kids were going hungry uh, after week one. And, um, you know, th- th- those, that's the, that's the, that, that strategy, uh, while we might understand it, has severe consequences for f- food security. So um, in terms of homelessness and food security, uh, we conducted, um, uh, using uh, survey data, 
an analysis of, of what it really meant to have a declining safety net for homelessness and food security in particular. We find a major impact on food insecurity, probably because of this process we see. Um, but for every fewer uh, TANF cases, our welfare system is now called TANF, in a state within a year, we see 14 more homeless kids as reported by their schools. For, this is like this result. Um, for years, I've taught a, a course on poverty and public policy. You know, you look across all these studies, you never see a result like this. This is a, a big result suggesting that uh, holes in the safety net are really driving really driving housing insecurity in ways uh, so so very consequential. Uh, the other uh, kind of ubiquitous strategy um, uh, is uh, plasma donations. So um, we know the plasma industry has just taken off in the United States. Um, almost all of our families had little divots on the inside of their elbows uh, from uh, scars, really, from, from frequent plasma donations. Um, the plasma industry has grown from about 10 million to 32 million um, independent donors uh, just since um, 2005. And uh, we've mapped out every plasma clinic in the country. And uh, there is a concentration, not in tracts that are poor, but that are deeply poor. So, um, you know, in some ways, um, plasma donations have become the lifeblood of the $2 a day poor. And there is a, uh, there is a clustering of these clinics uh, right here in, in this region where you, ha- you do have really high rates of poverty among single moms with kids. To talk about this region in particular, um, the inequality has been growing as the city has gotten, it's, Asheville's become sort of a boom town thanks to tourism and various other industries, but there also has been the growing inequality, which has been happening in other places across the U.S., obviously, too. Um, how do things like gentrification, how do things like housing insecurity and hunger insecurity really play into the sorts of things you're discussing and the sorts of things your book brings up of having an, a, an area like this that's really becoming popular and becoming richer, but at the same time, the inequality is growing. Yeah, so one of our sites was Johnson City, Tennessee, uh, just just around the corner, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, there's somewhat of that dynamic happening there, the Eds and Meds, of course, but, but also... Um, uh, a thriving tourist industry, so not of the magnitude you see in Nashville, but uh, but certainly some of those dynamics um, we do see. And I think there are both pluses and minuses, honestly, to this. So uh, the minuses are that uh, housing prices are driven up. But, you know, um, the maximum benefit, if you were to get welfare in North Carolina, which would be very difficult to do, I believe the maximum benefit is $274 a month. I can't think of any place you can live in the state. Uh, you tell me on, on that amount of money. So, you know, in, in in some ways, it doesn't matter how low the prices go; they're not going to go that low because landlords can't can't provide housing uh, for that price. Uh, but it's certainly for, for people who are sort of just plain poor or living on the margins. It can really affect their their housing security. For people on disability, you know, seven hundred fifty dollars a month doesn't get you very far. Uh, workman's compensation, unemployment insurance, uh, those folks, th- these rising rental prices, uh, rising property taxes can 
sink them in, it can throw them into a spiral, which can lead to extreme poverty. So we had several cases of that across the, across our sites. Um, and, you know, these are folks that on the margin would not, that would not have happened to. So these are sort of people on the, on the bubble who are, you know, who've managed to find work and are holding on to maybe a pretty marginal job, but they're making it uh, and they can be thrown into a spiral of extreme poverty. But on the, on the positive side, um, you know, you might expect that the most important thing for the $2 a day poor would be the private charitable sector. There are two problems with that. One is that private charity is unequally distributed. The richest places have the richest sector. So Boston has a rich sector. Uh, the Mississippi Delta, almost not. Johnson City, fairly limited. Although they, there's a lot of good folks in Johnson City doing good work. Um, and we, we met some of those people and really admire what they're what they're doing. So as your region gets richer, there's an opportunity for those folks who have the income to get involved. And what I've seen here is an incredible uh, civic spirit. You don't see, I've done hundreds of these presentations over the last three years since the book came out, and and you don't see that uh, in every place. You don't see um, the level of, of care and concern and connectedness, you know, in, in as you see here in in Asheville. So there's a real opportunity for uh, folks to get to know their region and its needs. Maybe they're not from here, uh, but they can be of here by connecting with with residents in ways that are meaningful and, and create actual relationships. My last question sort of goes a bit off of that about what are some solutions? We're in a very sustained period of economic growth nationally and in this region as well. What are some of the solutions to this problem? Uh, again, you're saying these are people on the margins. These are people who we may not necessarily know about unless yeah. we really go and search for them. Um, yeah. What are some solutions? Well, you know, it's funny. We, we do see these people every day because they're the people who service at McDonald's and who are at the reception desk at the, at the, um, at the Marriott and um, who are pumping our gas. Uh, what we don't know is they may be living in their cars. Right. They may be living in their cars. So what can we do? So um, in, in the book, we outline 14 practical solutions <laughs> to this problem. Uh, but but I just want to highlight two things. And, and the first is, um, is a very, you know, your employers are going to be listening to this broadcast saying, are you kidding me? Our biggest problem is getting qualified employees. And, you know, I hear that. Uh, but what they don't know is that their employees may be walking seven miles each way to get to work. A uh, story we, we recount about Johnson City, a worker in Johnson City in $2 a day. Uh, they may be, as I said, living in their cars. They may have just been evicted. And so perilous situations make for bad employers. So what uh, employers around the country have started doing is um, forming ERNs, Employment Resource Networks. So a group of mid-size or small employers band together. Um, they hire uh, a couple of what are called success coaches. And what these coaches do is they um, work with employees to identify, you know, what's what's keeping you from, from being retained or, or what's keeping you from being the most productive on-time worker you can be. And often it's like literally $45 in the gas tank. Or it's a referral to a substance abuse program that's already in the community. 
or it's um, you know assistance in applying for uh, for for uh, energy assistance. So oftentimes it's it's this little thing that makes a potentially good employee into a bad employee. And uh, the ERN in in um, Michigan has seen a dramatic. I mean, I don't even know if I believe their numbers. They're so high. So over a three hundred percent improvement in employee retention since uh, forming the ERN. The costs to the employer are minimal. You know, social workers are good people, and and uh, uh, they don't charge you an arm and a leg. But it's it's remarkable how uh, just this little knitting together. Uh, of community, you know, among employers can be so meaningful. And um, also just the level of empathy between employees and employees can really improve. So employers, you know, can become more sympathetic, but employees can also begin to understand uh, the effect that their performance has on the company's bottom line. Catherine Eden, thank you so much for coming in this morning. Appreciate being here.